I love the anticipation of the season. Um, you finish Thanksgiving, and um, our kids' minds turn towards Christmas, and the, the shopping, and as for, for us as parents trying to, to figure out what we're going to get for them, and um, the celebration, and the parties, and the time with family, and the lights, it's an awesome time of year. Um, and it's filled with this anticipation of this day that's coming and this celebration that we have. For centuries, the church has celebrated this season and they've called it Advent. It's a Latin word that just simply means waiting. And so Advent is this celebration, not just of the coming and the birth of Christ as we await that, but also the coming and the return of Christ. Not just that Christ was born a baby in Bethlehem in a manger, but also that Christ the King will return, that he's coming back to earth. And so Advent is this time of anticipation, of longing, and also preparation. It's this anticipation of this is not how the world is supposed to be. Things are not as they should be, and Christ has promised that one day they will be made right. And so we anticipate and we wait for that day. But it's also a day of preparation. It's a day of preparing for this guest, this king to come back. I remember as a kid, my parents would say, hey, we have company coming, and we got to get our house clean." And so we would slave and we would clean all day long and we would get it done and the people would walk into our house, these guests, after we had worked all day cleaning the house, they would walk in and my parents would say, hey, welcome. And my mom, the first words out of her mouth every time, you'll have to excuse the house. <laughs> and I got I to tell you, as a kid, I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, this house is cleaner than it's been in three months. You are getting the royal treatment. We prepared for you to come. And I think this is a a great time of year for us in just simply asking the question, are you prepared for the return of Christ? And then finally, this longing. And I think one of the great ways to think about this As I said a few minutes ago, a lot of you enter into this time of year and there is a sense that someone or something is missing. And you're reminded of a time that once was. And you long for that to be restored. You you long and hope for the way things should be to be put back together. And I think as followers of Jesus, we all have this longing. As we look at the world and we anticipate Christ's return, there is this longing that the world is not right. But we hope and pray that in Christ's coming, that everything will be put back together as it is supposed to be. It is redemption. It is the hope of restoration. It is the hope of Christ's return. The king is coming, and he is coming back. And so it's not just simply the preparation of ourselves, but it's also the preparation of his kingdom. The kingdom that he left you and I as his followers here on earth to build. 
And so he asked the question that comes with preparation. You, you see how wrong things are in the world. And they have been this way for a long time. But I think this question of preparation asks how or in what ways do you contribute to the chaos and the brokenness that you see? That, that all of us play a part in that. That broken humanity that Christ is going to return and restore. In what ways do you contribute to the brokenness? In what ways do you contribute to the lack of peace as we await Messiah? And so, we turn to a prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is speaking to people who have become very hard-hearted. And Ezekiel is not giving them words of hope and redemption. But he's come to announce the end of God's patience and a time for repentance. Why? Because the people of God, the people who bear his name, do not resemble him. See, the question for Israel from Ezekiel is not just do you bear my name? Are you my people? Are you God's chosen people called out, set apart? But it's do you look like your father? Which I think is a beautiful question for you and I. Do you resemble your father? Do you look like Jesus? Because the purpose of us entering into life with him is that day by day we would be transformed to look more and more like Jesus than we did the day before. Do you resemble your father? See, I think we've done a really scary thing in Christianity. And I think it's been a, a progression over the last several hundred years where it seems like we've tried to separate salvation and discipleship. That, that it's okay that you can follow Jesus, you can choose him as your savior, but not really follow him. Not fully commit your life to him. The discipleship is more of what the really committed people do. There's, yes, we're saved. Yes, we've trusted Jesus as Savior. But on the other side of that, if you're really committed, then you become his disciple and you start to look like him. And it's something that the church, the early church, never separated. That to be saved and to be a part of the kingdom of God was to be a disciple of Jesus. And to grow more and more in his likeness every day. To look more and more like your father. And we, we've said, well, okay, here's the purpose of what the Bible is all about at the core. The Bible is about how you get to heaven when you die. It's telling you how to get to heaven when you die. The Bible is not written to tell you how to get to heaven when you die. It is much bigger than that. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is written to describe the kingdom of God, his eternal kingdom that will go on and on and on and surpass other kingdoms for ages and ages and ages into eternity. And the invitation to be a part 
of that kingdom. See, when we walk into this water, and we sacrifice, and we lay down our life, and we're raised up into this new life, what we are saying is that we will serve and have no other allegiances except to him and his kingdom. That the King of kings and the Lord of lords is the Lord of our life, and that we are dying to our kingdom to live in his. Now, that sounds fantastic. Unless the kingdom you live in is full of comfort. See, if you live in the kingdom where you have all the comforts and you know where your next meal is going to come from and you know where you're going to lay your head and you have some security built up behind you, if you have all this stuff, then it gets really difficult to lay aside your kingdom for his. It gets really difficult to give up the certainty of our kingdom for the uncertainty of his. Because what he tells his followers is, come, come follow me, come be like me. And by the way, when you come and follow me, we might walk up this hill and we might be crucified on a cross. Do you, you want to follow me? Do you want to give up your kingdom and your comfort to come and be like me? Because it's a big calling. And the problem is as we sit in our comfort, it's very easy to be lulled to sleep. So Israel is a nation that God has set apart, a people belonging to God who is supposed to be different than the rest of the world. And they keep asking, this nation that's set apart, that's supposed to be different and supposed to be a blessing to the whole world, keeps saying, God, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. God, give us a king to go and fight our battles. Give us a king to, to put down rules and law. Give us a king so we can be like everyone else. And finally, God answers that. And he tells the prophet Samuel, he says, it's not you that they're rejecting, it's me that they're rejecting as their king. And so he gives them a king. A man named Saul becomes king and the project goes terribly wrong. And then David follows Saul as king. And then David's son Solomon. And after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel is divided into this northern and southern kingdom. And it's here that the prophet Ezekiel enters into the picture. And he enters into the picture not with these words of comfort and hope, but calling the people to repentance. Calling them to turn from their ways and stop going the direction that they're going and come back to him. And next comes the most painful threat of the covenant. 
then Israel finds them, will find themselves in exile, their temple destroyed, and these words will come as an astonishment to the people that hear them. That this can't be the purpose, this can't be the plan, this cannot be where things are really headed. So Ezekiel, chapter 34. And I want to just kind of sum up this first part where he condemns the shepherds. He, he talks to the shepherds of Israel, who are the kings, the leaders, the rulers, all of those who are given authority over the people of Israel. And, and I, I'm going to just sum up in one little sentence what he says to them. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only care about yourselves. Should shepherds not take care of their flock? And then he goes on in this condemnation saying, well, you just take the best of everything for yourself. And you don't worry about your lost sheep. You don't worry about your hurt sheep. You don't worry about your, your sheep that are missing or in need of care. You just take care of yourself. And you are the shepherds. Your purpose, your reason for being a shepherd is to care for your flock. And so he responds with these words. This is what God says to the shepherds and to the people. Verse 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them from, out from the nations and will gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them as a good, as in, tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep, and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so God, as he talks about restoring Israel and restoring the people, his promise is not to give them a new set of shepherds or new kings. His promise is that he will become their shepherd. Notice how many times the word I will appears in the text. That I will do this. I will come down. I will care for them. I will find them. I will search them out. That his promise is that he will take matters into his hands. And he will be the shepherd that the people never could be. Then he goes on to condemn the people. He goes on to speak to the people, and he says much of the same that he's just said to the shepherds. He says to the people, you, you graze in grass that's green, but yet before you graze in that grass, you go and trample the grass of other sheep. You drink from these clear streams, but before you drink from these clear streams, you go and muddy the waters of other sheep that are drinking 
from streams. And so here's his promise of restoration. He says, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. Ezekiel, by the way, is writing this after the time of King David. He's talking about one who is in the line of King David, who is Jesus. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. See, here, here's the problem with my sheep. Is they're beating each other up. To the point that they're driving them away. And it's not just enough for you to have what you need. You go and destroy what others have for no reason. I want to fast forward a little bit to the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus' disciples, he's preparing them for him leaving this earth and them being left with this incredible weight of responsibility to build the kingdom of God, to be his hands and feet on this earth. And he says in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, which is the same way Ezekiel 34 begins. This reference to the Son of Man. Jesus is constantly referring to himself as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people. One from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then he goes on to say that there's this, this judgment. And he's going to divide these sheep and these goats. He says, you were hungry, or I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was needing clothes and you clothes and you clothed me. I was sick or in prison and you came to visit me. He's going to say to those, "Come. Come. Here's the inheritance of the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning." And to the others, those who didn't care for the sick, the needy, in prison, hurting, broken, depart. And it sounds strangely familiar from Ezekiel's prophecy against Israel. 
See, I wonder at times if one of the greatest sins that we can commit is to use our power and our position to oppress people. To neglect, to marginalize, to oppress, to leave the broken alone. And not meet their needs. See, the shepherds are in this place of prominence, of position. And they're using their power not to give life and not to bless, but to tear down and to take care of themselves, to take what they need, to provide for themselves, and not worry about those around them. Because this kingdom that was supposed to bless the whole world did not resemble the Father who had called them to be a blessing. It did not resemble the Father who had blessed them so that they could take His blessing to the ends of the earth. See, and here's where I think it gets really difficult in our culture. Because I think that our American culture today would say Israel's shepherds got it right. They wouldn't come out and say it outright. It's a much more subversive message. But it's a message that says you take care of yourself. You get what you need. You make sure your needs are met. You make sure your family is taken care of. You make sure everything that you have in your world is safe and secure and locked down. And God's kingdom comes right into the middle of this world. And it says, no, you lay down. This water right here, it represented you dying to your kingdom to be a part of his. Let me, let me just confess this. This has been one of the hardest things I've prepared to preach. Because I don't like these words. I like my comfort. I like my security. I like knowing where my next meal is going to come from. I wonder how many times in my comfort I overlook <clears throat> I overlook those who are in need those who are hurting and oppressed and marginalized because it simply makes me uncomfortable. In this world that tells us to win at all cost, we've gotten this message, just gather around people who are like you, who think like you, who talk like you, who act like you, 
and everything will be okay. In the 1964 presidential election, they did a, a study. And of all of the votes across our nation, 25% of the counties in America reported landslide victories. Where everyone basically voted on the same ticket, same, same party lines, thinking the same thing. Do you know what it was in 2016? It was over 80% of the counties had landslide victories. See, in our comfort, there's a tendency to congregate around those who are like us. And at many times at the detriment to people who are not. I wonder, I wonder if the first commandment that was ever written in the Bible is still as true today as it was then. You remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will die. Here's this, this garden. Here's this good creation. Don't eat of this tree. Because when you eat this tree, you're going to die. There's all these other trees, and there's this tree of life right here in the center of the garden. Don't eat from this tree. But that tree is so appealing. And it looks so delicious. And it's appealing to us. It's comfort food. Because if we eat that tree, we can know right and wrong. And we can know what side we stand on. We can see how they're wrong and how we're right. And we can see how they're wrong and we're right. And we can stand here. And the problem is when you start playing that game, it never ends. Because you will always find something that you disagree with in every person. Be, be careful. That tree, there's a snake that lives in it. Be, be really careful when you go and eat from that tree. Well, but okay, how, how do we know which side we're on? How do we know what's right and wrong? Eat from the tree of life. My, my guess is you don't have to tell, have anyone tell you what's dead and what's alive. You, you can figure that out. You, you've never been to a funeral and just stood at the casket and be like, they look pretty good. But by the way, please never say that at my funeral. I, I don't want to hear, he looks pretty good. You know 
if something's dead or alive. You know if something gives life or it drains life. And yes, there will be times where you have to pick a side. But can I just say, it seems like Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of God, always sides with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the hurting and the broken. I want to read you something. There's a statue that we have that called the Statue of Liberty. And on it, there's a poem that was written by Emma Lazarus in 1883. It says, Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flames is the imprisoned lighting, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that the twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, you storied pomp, cries she. With silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuge of our teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I will lift my lamp beside the golden door. I don't know much about Emma Lazarus. But that sounds a lot like the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke of. And the question I want to simply ask today, who have you pledged your allegiance to? Because what that water says, when you enter into His kingdom, when you're covered in His blood, when your life begins again, when you're raised from death into life, into this new kingdom. It says, I forsake all other allegiances. For my allegiance to His kingdom. I'm laying down everything that I want, my comfort, my safety, my security to be a part of His. And can I just say that's hard? That's hard. And I don't know if it's something that we ever fully figure out. But I think it's supposed to be a tension that we wrestle with every single day. And Jesus is going to say in another parable, wake up. Wake up. Don't be lulled to sleep. 
Don't, don't fall asleep in your comfort and complacency. Wake up. Open your eyes. Because the king is coming back. And one day, you and I will stand before him. We'll stand before him with our lives as simply all we have to show. I believe, I love this country. I do. I think it's the greatest Babylon in the history of the world. But it's still Babylon. It's not the kingdom of God. What I do know is the words from Revelation and the angel spoke, these will be true. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah. And He will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Don't forget. Don't fall asleep. Open your eyes because the kingdom of God is all around us. And you have been invited to be a part. So we offer you that invitation today. If you're not a part of his kingdom, if you've never died to yourself and been raised into this new life with him, that today is that chance. Today is the day you make the commitment that you step across the line, that you decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. And it's there in the water that our past, our sins are forgiven, they're washed away, and we begin this life new. Not chasing after our own kingdom, not building our own kingdom, but simply engaging and building his. That is the invitation. That has always been the invitation. Come and be part of that kingdom. If we could simply pray for you wherever you are, whatever's going on, we'll have shepherds, ministry staff around this auditorium, whatever we could do to help you. Come while we stand and sing. All to Jesus I surrender.